Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. Hi everyone, we have a brief announcement to all the CSB SCB graduate student members. Francie and I have launched the 2021 Peer Mentorship Program, which will run for the 2021 academic year. This is a great opportunity to get involved and meet students in our supportive CSB community. Mentors and mentees with similar interests will be matched for the opportunity to receive feedback on scholarship proposals, PhD and or postdoctoral applications, and other general advice for success in graduate school. All you need to do is complete the mentor-mentee application and confidentiality agreement forms on the student tab of the CSB SCB webpage and send them to us at students at csb-scb.com. We look forward to hearing from many of you and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode four of the CSB SCB podcast. Today we're discussing the mechanics of bone and biomaterials. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Heidi Plug from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Plug is an associate professor in the Department of Mechanical and Materials Engineering, and within the faculty, she's the chair for Women in Engineering. In addition to now holding a faculty appointment at Queen's, she also earned her undergraduate, master's, and doctoral degrees in mechanical engineering from there. Dr. Plug has held positions in both the private industry sector and in academia, and we're looking forward to hearing about some of those perspectives today as well. So Dr. Plug, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this. So, Dr. Plu, you completed all of your training in the field of mechanical engineering. Uh, When and how did you become interested in applying your knowledge of mechanical engineering to biological structures and tissues? I didn't even know about that possibility until my fourth year in undergrad. At that time at Queen's in mechanical engineering, we didn't have a biomechanics stream but we had to do a research project. Um, And that's when I met my eventual PhD advisor, Dr. Urs Wies, and he was my undergrad research advisor. And at that time he was designing total joint replacement for the big toe. And my job uh, on the project was to do the finite element analysis between the implant and the bone. And that's basically defined (laughs) what I've done for my whole research career. So it was my undergrad research advisor, Urs Wies, was my first introduction to the field, and I just got hooked. And that was also what got you hooked on bone and investigating that tissue in particular. Yeah. And this this whole story about trying to make a model and not having enough data and ending up doing mostly experiments. (laughs) (laughs) When looking through your publications, it becomes clear that you've been involved in many, many different projects. You've done work related to the material testing of bone, the development and testing of biomaterials like bone cement, for example, mechanical analysis of orthopedic implants, finite element modeling, and the design and development of methods for mechanical testing. Can you give us an overview of some of the recent research projects in your bone and joint biomechanics lab at Queen's? The focus of our work here at Queen's is understanding the role of mechanical loading on live bone tissue. 
So I'm super interested to know what kinds of loads. So separate out magnitude and rate. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence that certain activities promote bone growth, but a lot of that evidence is based on a very complicated load signal. And so in our lab, what we want to do is separate out those signals. So we want to do testing on live bone where we have bones that are loaded with high strain rate, high load, and other samples that are loaded with a low strain rate, high load, and then the opposite of those two, and then of course the control. My interest is really to understand how bone responds to load in a very controlled situation. What are some of the common experimental techniques that you use? Like what does a setup look like in, in your lab? It's a really unique setup and I got introduced to it when I started my position at UW-Madison. I had a collaborator there that was designing a bioreactor for trabecular bone. And so he introduced me to these experimental methods. So what we do is we harvest live bone, either from an animal or from a human, prepare the samples. And they're like, there's these particular samples are very small. It's like five millimeters high by 10 millimeter diameter core. And each one lives in, a, in its own bioreactor. So we keep it free of disease and we keep it at body temperature and we feed it with culture medium and vitamins and antibiotics and things. The advantage of having them each in their own bioreactor is that we can collect the culture medium from each sample. So we can look at what biochemicals are being produced by the bone as we're subjecting them to these different load situations. So it gives us this other layer of data that we can, what I'm hoping to do is feed into the models. So it's not just mechanical, it's really biochemical and mechanical. On the mechanical side, what we're doing is looking at how the bone is responding to the load. So the bulk stiffness will change over the experiment. So the experiments can run up to like two months, but it's usually a lot of work to run an experiment. So if we can get a change in bulk stiffness within a month, then we will stop the experiment. Sometimes the experiment stops earlier because we haven't kept the samples clean enough and that happens a lot too. But the, the goal is to run experiment for a month or two months. We'll measure changes in like biochemical response from the culture medium and mechanical changes like the change in bulk stiffness. Um, the other data that we collect is the micro CT data. We usually use that just for defining the microstructure of the bone as opposed to an actual response to the treatment because the, the micro CT data that we're getting isn't high enough resolution to measure osteoid accumulation on the trabecular bone. So you mentioned trabecular bone and that that's where your samples come from. Not all our listeners may know what bone really looks like and that it's not this homogeneous piece of material, but that it has these distinct regions. Could you maybe briefly explain what those regions are that we have in bone? Yeah, so we categorize our bone into two regions. The, the shell, we call the, the cortex or the cortical bone, and it's a higher density type bone with smaller pores and less porosity than the inside, which is a cancellous or trabecular structure. Is there a particular body region or bone that you're interested in and why? I think for me, I've done most of the work in the hip. So it keeps coming back in terms of like the types of implants I designed. My specialty was hip and knee, but I did a lot of hip. And now also with the bioreactor work and fracture prediction work, I do a lot of work on the hip. 
a new collaboration with a dental implant company, and now I'm getting interested in mandibular bone and the bone implant interface between dental implants. So I would say the constant one is hip, but I, I keep being pulled. You saw my CV, so <laughs> I get pulled in a lot of different directions. When we think of the application of the, the basic science work that you do, I guess we're always interested in this, if there's a specific scenario or injury pathway that we're interested in. And I guess you kind of mentioned it already that you're looking at failure of the bone. What I'm trying to do, but I'm still working on figuring out how to do it, but it would be ideally to define an exercise regime that promotes healthy bone, puts off these total joint replacements that I've been designing or helping design, or puts off this eventual fracture in these osteopenic populations. So really what I, I would say my main interest is defining mechanical loading, which would be then somehow converted into an exercise therapy that would help people not need total joint replacements or avoid their first hip fracture longer. So much of the work to date on the mechanical properties of bone is done on cadaveric specimens. In a promotional video of your lab, I really liked your description of bones as smart materials. This experimental setup that you've adopted seems to pose several really good opportunities to study how bone tissue adapts and maladapts to mechanical loads. So first, can you briefly explain to the listeners what you meant by describing bones as smart materials? Yeah, I use that term sometimes also in presentations about my research lab. And the reason I use it, it, it kind of connects sometimes with my engineering colleagues because they're working on smart materials. And it's just a way that I'm using to describe the biological response of bone. So we know that bone is able to grow and adapt to its environment. And mechanical is just part of the environment because it has bone cells, right? There, there are cells that are responsible for growing bone and cells that are responsible for resorbing bone. And then we think there are cells, osteocytes, that are somehow orchestrating all this. But we really don't know a lot about that. So I, I use that term smart material to kind of package the biological response. How frequently do you apply these bouts of loading to the isolated bone tissues? Is this a repeated exposure? Is it more of an acute exposure? Can you explain what some of the load rest ratios are that you're incorporating? Really good question. So what we're trying to do is load it in a healthy, we call it physiological range. So we're not trying to create damage. We're trying to be in that regime. So this is part of the question. What is that regime that creates bone? I think it's not just about the, the amount of strain, but how quickly the strain is applied. So what I'm trying to do is find that area where I can maximize that healthy mechanical response of the bone to the load. So not a damage. Absolutely not. And I want to take advantage of that so that we can, depending on the person's age, sex, disease state, prescribe an exercise therapy that falls within that range for that person. What is the mode of loading for these bone specimens? Is this a bending approach that we often see in a lot of bone work? Is it purely tension? What kind of loads are you applying? We're doing it in compression. And I didn't, I guess I didn't finish answering the question you asked before. So um, typically we load five days a week and 100 to 200 cycles a day. What we did start doing is giving the grad students and the bone a rest on the weekends. So, but there's also physiological evidence that bone needs a rest period. I'm really intrigued to hear your rationale for the application of compression loading. It's an easier load case 
the applied bulk strain field is uniform as opposed to bending you've got that linear gradient from the tension to the compression side it also is practical in terms of the bioreactors so to be able to load them in the bioreactor it's something i've thought about it was like a it's a good place to start but i have thought about ways that we could do different types of loading in the bioreactor as well but it's um it's an easy place to start based on some of the work you've done to date or lately have you noticed any distinct mechanical differences between the live and cadaveric bone samples yeah i don't think we can answer that question yet our thought is that it's it is important it is a difference um, especially when you're talking about damage so when you have a live tissue and you're cyclically loading it daily if it were dead, I assume, depending on that strain level, you would start to create damage in it and your bone wouldn't have a chance to repair it. I'm, I'm not sure about our levels of strain, how much they overlap with that kind of low fatigue damage. I suspect there's a difference in viscoelastic response. So we're trying to understand the viscoelastic response of tissues in general, but also um, specifically the trabecular tissue. And I suspect there is a difference between live and dead tissue viscoelastic response, but between all the variances, it's really difficult to say what that difference is. So now with respect to the culturing that you do, what are some of the biochemical changes that you're assessing? We're looking at the biochemicals that the bone is producing under load. So our most recent experiments, we were looking at big endothelin, which is one of those essential molecules to all living systems. And it's been studied a lot in terms of the cardiovascular system. It's a vasoconstrictor, but we think it's also really important in bone. So that's like one of the new biochemicals or new, I mean, new to us biochemicals that we were looking at. So we're like adding it to the culture medium or blocking it and then measuring the bone's response to it. So besides that one, we also keep an eye on any biochemicals related to the WENT pathway. Um, the WENT pathway is the one that we're most certain about in terms of how the biochemicals are interacting with each other. And so what we'll do is measure the chemicals related to the WENT pathway, you know, and it's, it's more just to see, okay, we, we see this chemicals being upregulated, which means the WENT pathway is open and so therefore it is remodeling. So the, the biochemicals we look at um, are either ones that we're adding. So vitamin D is another interesting hormone slash biochemical that we might add or other pharmaceutical therapies. And then the other kind of group of biochemicals we look at are the ones associated with the WENT pathway. So the mechanical and material properties that you obtain from your mechanical testing, they're important for advancement and fidelity of models that are being used to predict three-dimensional stresses, strains, and failure in bone tissue. And one area of expertise of yours that you already mentioned is the finite element modeling. Can you describe briefly what that is and then also describe your involvement in some of that theoretical work? Like we were saying at the beginning, so the, the finite element modeling is what I learned first. So when I was a fourth year engineering student, so uh, finite element modeling is a tool that we use in mechanical engineering. It's basically a, a really nice way to take advantage of a computer that can run a lot of simple calculations in parallel. And so we, we basically break down a very complicated system into many very easy equations. So what that means in terms of a bone is 
we make sure that the we're getting the right shape of the bone so we have the anatomical shape we usually get that from computed tomography data we also want to define the mechanical properties so like what we were saying before it's bone is non-homogeneous and isotropic and viscoelastic but we can divide up the bone into these their elements finite that's where the name comes from finite elements so each of those elements gets its own mechanical property kind of the trick is knowing what mechanical property to assign them which is why you really end up doing a lot of experimental work to support the definition of these input parameters but also then on the on the back end in terms of validating the result besides the geometry material properties the third input category for finite element analysis is the boundary conditions so one of the nice things about the bioreactor is it's a simple boundary condition it's compression so we'll just define an axial load on the top and bottom surfaces and in that case it's easy but you can imagine if you're trying to and and people do model you know a femur in a person then you've got to take care of all the muscle insertion attachment sites and and joint contact loads and then it gets pretty complicated to define the boundary conditions as well i believe that <laughs> another really impressive component of your work is related to orthopedic implants and biomaterial like bone cement in particular with biomaterials people can study the bioactive components so how it integrates with the surrounding tissue maybe stimulates new tissue growth the adhesion with implants or fixation devices like screws and soft tissue bone interface in scenarios where you require a graft, for example. Can you explain your work on bone cement and, and implants? Just tell us a bit about it. I'm really interested in the bone implant interface. So the, the most common point of failure in total joint replacements is still the, the bone implant interface. And one solution is using a grout, which is the bone cement. So it's, it's inert in that there's no biological response to its present. It just kind of fills the cavities and gaps between the implant and the bone. You know, right from the beginning, my involvement with total joint replacement design, even as an undergrad researcher, I've been studying bone cement. It's one of the main solutions to fixing total joint replacements. So I wouldn't say I've been involved in its development, but I guess it all comes back down to it's like it's one of the boundary conditions, one of the modes of failure in this in this system. And so I would say my work is more understanding the material that we have. What we've done recently, we weren't really developing a new bone cement, but we were adding a new antibiotic to the bone cement. So one of the nice things about bone cement in terms of total joint replacement is you can use it as a vehicle to deliver antibiotics directly to the total joint replacement site. An infection, unfortunately, is still one of the big problems of total joint replacement. One of the reasons it's not as successful as it could be. Um, so by adding antibiotics to the bone cement, we can use it as a prevention for this infection at the joint site. It's one of those failures that it's not that frequent in terms of numbers, but it's terrible when it happens. So it's something we really want to avoid. The problem with adding anything to the bone cement is that you're destroying the mechanical properties. And so some of the work we did with the antibiotic was test on one side, test the efficacy of the antibiotic. So like, is the antibiotic still working? Is it eluding from the bone cement? Is it still doing its job to kill bacteria after it's been in this 
bone cement environment. But then also from the bone cement side, now that the antibiotic has eluded, it's left this hole in this bone cement. And we all know that the pores in the bone cement have caused bone cement to fail in the past. And so I wouldn't say I'm, I'm developing bone cements in themselves. I'm just studying kind of like existing materials and putting stuff together and seeing if we can take advantage of the two things in a, in a better way. What about some of your involvement in the development, design, or testing of orthopedic implants? I've seen that you've done some work on hip stems. Can you discuss some of that work? Yeah, especially when I worked for the orthopedic implant company, that was a really big part of our everyday job. So to be able to sell implants, you have to pass standard tests that are specific to each implant. But besides the external standards, every company has internal standards. So as a research engineer in an orthopedic company, we did a lot of work on numerical testing, so modeling, finite element modeling, and mechanical testing of materials and implants and interfaces. Some of them uh, contributed to standards you know, uh, for a particular country or a group of countries. Transitioning our way into the discussion of your many interesting career changes, for example, you've transitioned from working at an orthopedic company overseas in Switzerland back to academia, and you've transitioned from an approximately 15-year faculty appointment at an American institution, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, to your current job at Queen's University. Can you talk a little bit about the transition from academia into your industry job? It's a really good question, and I, I really like that I have those different experiences, and it's something that's been really helpful to me in terms of teaching mechanical engineering at university, having had that experience in industry has given me, I think, more confidence than had I just, you know, learned about mechanical engineering in classes. And so having had that industry experience has been a huge benefit to now teaching mechanical engineering. One of the main differences, when I worked for an orthopedic company, the research I did had to promote the product. So uh, my research at that point was more bone cement implants, and I was uh, able to do some projects on bone when it was related to the bone implant interface, which is fine. With like, I was super interested in that anyway. But I was becoming more and more interested in the bone, and like I was saying, I, what I would really like to research is a way of not using total joint replacements or not having a hip fracture. I want to really just look at the bone and see if we can define like physical therapy to prevent this or at least postpone it. And I can't do, I couldn't do that in an orthopedic company. They weren't interested in funding <laughs> that kind of work, right? So I had this kind of naive thought, oh, if I work in an academic lab, I can choose what I want to work on <laughs> and I'm going to be able to work more on bone. And so that was my original thought. But the reality is in anywhere, I mean, you need funding and funding's not easy to get. And so you end up working in projects that are interesting, but you're still being dictated to where you can get funding. And I mean, as an academic starting a new lab, you apply for funding everywhere and all over the place. Like you don't just rely on one funding source. So the reality was I, I was able to do some work on bone, but I ended up doing a lot of other interesting projects as well. Were there any challenges associated with you then returning from your industry job back into academia? That transition was a lot more challenging than I anticipated. And it wasn't just because of the transition from industry to academia, but it was also 
All my formal education was in Canada. My industry experience was in Switzerland, and then I was moving to American academia. And American academia, well, I would say any academia, they have like a way of doing things, right? And my way was not, <laughs> was not their way, which doesn't make anything easy that way because they can't like check off, oh, you did a postdoc in this great lab. And we know who your postdoc advisor is. I mean, they didn't even recognize my university where I got my PhD. Queen's University, you know, when you're in Canada, you think, oh, everybody knows Queen's University. But I found out pretty quickly when I moved to Switzerland, nobody has heard of Queen's University. And in the States, it was the same kind of thing. So my CV basically, you know, nobody, it's not that it was not helpful, but it just wasn't recognized. I also had the feeling that I didn't get any kind of academic credit for my industry experience. So I felt really like I was starting kind of behind where everybody else was starting. I started without a postdoc. My industry experience, although it helped my confidence and my experience, and was also a great network in terms of funding sources. So that was helpful, but it wasn't recognized in this standard academic format. That uh, fits all perfectly with what the next question would have been, <laughs> comparing the two different systems and being a faculty member at an American and Canadian institution. Are there any other differences you can think of in, in terms of research and funding, but also teaching and, and service and what's expected of you as a faculty member? Part of the reason I wanted to come back to Canada was for the Canadian environment. And I have found a, a really positive difference between the American environment and the Canadian environment. And it, you know, it's some simple things like in Canada, I have a 12 month salary. In the States, I had a nine month salary. So in the States, mostly now, I think all faculty members get paid for the academic year. And then you are allowed or you are able to fund your salary during the summer through funding for your research. But that puts a huge pressure on you in terms of your funding. It increases the budget of your funding. So it's a lot easier here. I don't have to take care of my salary. My student's salary here in Canada, it's really in my budget. It's just the stipend and you know their, their health insurance, their tuition, that's taken care of here. Whereas in the States, that was all put in, in the proposal budgets. So the, the proposal budgets are really high in the States, which Uh, it's just like it's an added stress. It's especially if I'm applying to funding from external collaborators in industry. It's so much easier to work with this kind of system in Canada. So that's like a basic administrative thing. But one of the, the big things I noticed almost immediately when I started interviewing Canada compared to the States was the, the cultural differences. So here in Canada, people openly, this might seem strange to you, but people openly talk about I can't make that meeting because I have to pick up my kids. And I could be a man or a woman saying that. Or I can't make that meeting because I'm going to the cottage. In Canada, that's like a perfectly normal conversation to have. And it's so relieving to me <laughs> because everyone's doing that, right? Like even in the States, my whole experience in the States has just been this one institution. So I don't know if that's representative. But in my work environment, people didn't talk about I can't, like they would say, I, I can't, I'm not available, but they wouldn't say, I have to pick up my kids or I'm going to the cottage. They would only talk about time that they were spending on their work. So it always seemed like people were working all the time, but it, it was like this fallacy, like nobody does that, but you're just not allowed to talk about it. 
Were there any differences in your teaching demands? Yeah, I had a high teaching load at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which made it very difficult to write proposals and write papers. My teaching load is a lot less here. And part of the reason for that is my service here is a little bit higher, which is fine. And I like that service. The thing I don't like about it is that it's it shouldn't be a tax to my time. It should be a contribution and it should be rewarded and recognized and therefore my teaching load should be reduced. And that's exactly the system that Queens is following. And it's just such a less stressful environment and rewarding environment to work in. You mentioned financials. Could you explain to us what a difference is between hard and soft funding and what maybe some benefits are, but also limitations of those two models? So what I was talking about, the nine-month versus 12-month salary. So in Canada, my salary is hard funding. Like, I, I know I will be paid every month of the year. In the States, a faculty salary is nine months hard and three months soft. So that means you have to budget your home expenses knowing that that summer salary might not be consistently there. And there are people in academia that have a lot more percent soft money versus hard money. Some people are 100% soft money. And that's a very stressful situation to be in because like from year to year, you know, grants aren't typically that long. Like a, a five-year grant is a long grant. But, you know, if you are paying a mortgage from year to year, you want to know that you're having a salary next year too and not just on this one grant. Advantages of soft money? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there is an advantage to being on soft money. I think it's a very stressful way to do research. You know, there are countries, and Switzerland, I think, is an example of that, where there's a lot more hard money in research. And I think there's a lot of advantages to that. Is that something that would be clearly outlined already like in the posting something when you apply for a faculty position? Will they tell you this from the get-go? The nine-month versus... 12-month salary? Yeah. Yes, yes. That's That would be clearly. We're doing a lot of hiring right now, and I really do think that's something we need to advertise because it's, it's not the default in the States, but I think it's a huge advantage as a faculty member, and I think we could do a better job in Canada of advertising that because it, it is a huge burden relief to have that 12-month salary, and I think we could do a better job of putting that higher up in the description. For sure, that could be a huge selling point. And uh, you've supervised graduate students working towards their degrees in both Canadian and American institutions. Are there differences in the graduate programs that you have been exposed to? Not really. Um, I think UW-Madison had a little bit more coursework than it seems here at Queen's. There's a lot more flexibility on which courses and how many courses students take, which is really, I think, nice for the student. So if a student feels like they need more courses that will help their research, they have that option. But at UW, sometimes it seemed like the requirements of how many courses students had to take was higher than the number of courses that were available for them to take. So they were like, you know, taking classes to fill that requirement as opposed to actually having the freedom to choose classes that would benefit their research or their interests. You know, and I'm comparing two schools. I don't know what other schools do in Canada, but I do kind of like giving that choice to the student and the advisor as opposed to dictating it from the department. So as I briefly mentioned in the intro, at Queen's University, you've been appointed as the chair for women in engineering. Can you tell us a little bit about this program within the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science? 
that's one of the amazing things about my position here. Almost from the beginning, we started working on this project together with a donor family who is supporting this chair for women in engineering. And one of the great things about the donation is it's a perpetual chair. So it's, it's something that now Queen's has and it will continue. I'm just the first one. My term is five years and I can pass it on to someone, to another faculty member after that five years. But it's with us now in perpetuity. And I really think it's a good way to to try to make a difference. The percentage of women in engineering now is pretty much the same as it was when I was an undergrad. And it just, I cannot believe that, you know, when I was an undergrad, I knew that there were less women than men in engineering. And I just assumed that that was going to not be the case when I was my age now. And the numbers are pretty much flat. Like we are not progressing in terms of increasing the number of women in engineering. So we really need to put effort in terms of time and money into increasing diversity in general. And women is just one type of diversity. So the, the goal of the chair is to increase the number of women in engineering in a simple, short statement. But I honestly think by increasing the number of women in engineering, we're making the environment more accepting to everybody. So the goal is really to increase the diversity in engineering. So not just women, but women of different color, of different background, LBGTQ people as well. What types of outreach strategies have you used for encouraging women to pursue studies in engineering? Queen's has a lot of outreach activities already going on. So as a chair for women in engineering, I'm just I'm just one person and I have an associate, Carolyn Barrell is helping me as well. But we work with existing programs at Queen's and not just at Queen's, but other universities across Canada. So we have a connections engineering program here that works with kids in the community. To end the episode, we have five rapid fire questions. And for these questions, please try to answer in one sentence or less if you can. <laughs> so first one, what is your favorite hobby or pastime? Road cycling is my favorite hobby. Number two, as a student, undergraduate or graduate, uh, what was the most challenging course you ever took or the most interesting? Maybe those are the same. No, definitely not the same. <laughs> the most challenging for me was first year chemistry. So that transition from high school to chemistry labs at university I found really challenging I would say made it not interesting <laughs> and then interesting I really like classes on mechanics of materials and viscoelastic materials number three what is the best piece of career advice that you have been given I had a colleague at UW-Madison and she said to me once that it's not required to get an A on everything so like to get tenure For instance, at that time was what I was working on at UW-Madison. You know, you don't have to check off all the boxes perfectly. And that was a huge relief. It was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> so like we train our whole life to like be perfect or as close to perfect as possible. And that's kind of a ridiculous thought. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> Number four, you've done both. Would you consider yourself more of an experimentalist or a theorist? I still think I'm a modeler. I wouldn't say theorist, because I think that's a whole other category, perhaps. But I, I do like modeling, so finite element modeling specifically. But yes, I end up spending most of my time doing experiments. <laughs> but it's in support of the modeling. 
And number five, you get to have dinner with up to three biomechanists of your choice. Who do you invite? So Joyce Kayak is one of the people I always seek out at conferences to have lunch with her. And I've read her papers as a, as a student and still read about her new papers now. So Joyce Kayak definitely would be one of the people I would want to have lunch with, partly because I know her already and I know her work. Another person I would really like to get to know, I haven't met her yet, but I love her papers, is Hannah Isaacson. She's in Sweden. So I'm hoping to sometime be at a conference where she is and I can have lunch with her. Uh, the third person I would say would be Brent Edwards in Calgary. So he's someone I've got to know over Twitter, I would say, more <laughs> than, than um, meeting him in person. And I would like to hang out with him in person more. Those are my three. Cool. Maybe we can arrange something. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That concludes our fourth episode with Dr. Heidi Pluch. Dr. Pluch, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. On our next episode, we will be discussing motion capture technology with Dr. Scott Selby, CEO of Thea Merkulis and Director of Research at C-Motion. And remember, if you have any specific questions for our confirmed guests, please email them to us so we can integrate them into the interviews. Please send all content or questions to students at csb-scb.com. Mm -hmm.